Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast wing, podcast arm, if you will, of www.thebattleground.eu. I'm the, they, Joel keeps sort of saying like, we'll come up with a, come up with a title for you. And he never quite does. Even books editor is the best thing that they came up with for me. Um, and I think it's just because I read a lot of books and I'm so unimaginative. I call myself the London correspondent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sort of like on the streets, seeing what's happening. Unofficially. This is mostly just going to be for the time being. We have some interview stuff set up. I did an interview with Peter Salmon a few months ago. I have an interview coming up with Quinn Slobodian, hopefully that will get posted soon about neoliberalism and about his book Globalist, which uh, I commend you all. But mostly what we want to do is just sort of talk about what's going on and see if we can try and get some purchase on it. And I think that the number one thing in the news in North America right now, besides the, the rapidly dwindling supply of ivermectin, the anti-worming stuff that the right-wingers have decided is the cure for COVID, I mean, my God, I won't take the COVID vaccine, but I will take a horse dewormer, which I suppose is better than like washing your innards out with bleach or whatever. Donald Trump at one time suggested was the the Joe Rogan approach over the Donald Trump approach. Yeah, I mean when when Joe Rogan is the sort of like model for behavior in North America, like you really hit a pretty low point. But anybody watching this probably already knew that. So ironically, because Afghanistan was, I thought a lost cause on day one. I mean, I really the whole sort of rhetoric of we're going to go in there and nation build or whatever was, you know, I thought it was a pipe dream, and a lot of people did. I mean, it wasn't. There was this sort of moment, kind of post 9-11 moment where everyone was like, well, oh, something's got to be done. Let's start bombing some people. And then you could kind of see that the sort of creep, even before there were any boots on the ground in Afghanistan, that it was going to be about Iraq. I mean, it was, it, was, it was pretty much open secret that that was what they were looking to do. So the whole mission in Afghanistan, I mean, it was funny going forward that they tried to sort of make it into, they tried to sort of sell it in this, in this way, like, oh, we're bringing freedom to the benighted Afghanis, like uh, Laura Bush, who basically didn't do very much else in public during her husband's presidency, yeah. got out as the sort of avatar of uh, benighted Afghani womanhood. She did that for about 10 minutes in public and then, you know, disappeared again to no one's, to no one's surprise. But it's, it's, it's really one of those situations where not only was it a loser going in, I mean, really the, the idea that we were going to go in there, that they were just waiting to, to be like Warden June Cleaver and just turn into us was obviously a fantasy. But the worst part in a, in a, in a certain sense was that, I mean, over and above the horrific destruction, loss of life, etc., was that in a weird way, it was a kind of rejigging of the whole Vietnam complex, which has been the definitive experience of American life ever since you know I was born in 68, the year of the Tet Offensive. Uh, in the 70s, I remember, you know, Vietnam was omnipresent in American culture. In the 80s, we started trying to refight it um, and win this time. And every... The Rambo. Uh, right, yeah, Rambo. After the first one, the first one was about... Vietnam veterans are messed up and why don't we take better care of them? But then the second one, he moves off into trying to rewin the war and he's not alone. There's the, there's this persistent fiction that there were like these prison camps where the, the, the Vietnamese were holding 
American soldiers for years and decades after the war. And it was it was sort of a myth created by the U.S. government because they were trying to downplay the actual casualty statistics, I think, is, is the explanation. But but they allowed this myth to be created that, that you know, the Vietnamese were holding all these poor, you know, horribly mistreated soldiers. In it. Uh, and not to say that the, 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 the leadership of North Vietnam was was very nice. They certainly were not. But it was clearly one of those kind of like, you know, we lost it. We need to rewin it. But the, the mistake that they made in Vietnam was very much the same mistake they made in Afghanistan. They just made it for a lot longer. Uh, I'm curious, how does it look from uh, from outside the bounds of the United States? Well, the UK has its own special kind of history with Afghanistan that isn't acknowledged. Certainly not in, in public discourse, certainly not in the media. Every so often you hear references to the Anglo-Afghan wars, but it's not really discussed in depth what happened. And Afghanistan is basically the only uh, colonised country in the 19th century to resist and successfully resist British colonial uh, expeditions. They basically chased the British army out in 1842, um, which we've completely erased from our our collective memory and our pop culture. It's it's not something you learn about in schools, but it's a huge. It was a huge moment for the Afghans. It's it's quote I think one historian put it. It's it's like for the British we have the Battle of Britain, Waterloo, Trafalgar. The Afghans had all three in one, <laughs> right? And that was right. kicking the British out. But we kept coming back. We came back in the 1870s and reinvaded and fought another war. I think we were back just after the uh, Indian Rebellion, so-called Indian Mutiny. And then we came back again in the 1890s. Winston Churchill was there. And then again in 1919. And then you skip forward several decades and we follow the Americans in. There's a sort of interesting element here in the respect that there's a kind of anti-colonialist element to American thought, like especially less less now, but in the mid-20th century, there was this sort of, I mean, one of the sort of beefs that, that Winston Churchill had with, with Roosevelt was that Roosevelt was, I mean, not only did Roosevelt sort of leverage a lot of British possessions and money yeah. because the British were being attacked by Nazi Germany, but Roosevelt was always kind of chiding Churchill about, about British colonialism, very ironically, because America... It's not like the United States is, doesn't have a colonial past. We just have done it slightly differently. I mean, by and large, we don't do settler colonies. We just do, like the Philippines, sort of brutal colonial systems run by us at the top and the, the locals on the ground. But um, although you are a settler colon, colonial system originally, right? Well, that's so. that's yes. North America was the sort of exception, but that that I blame on you. Yeah, fair um, enough. But that's the thing about being a settler colony. You really like. The logic of it is you have to sort of get rid of the the people who are there, which which we did. I mean, the, like the the whole United States is based on on slavery and the genocide of the native people. So, but but by and large, in the in the nineteenth and twentieth century, we were more about sort of setting up client systems as opposed to as opposed to large scale settler colonialism. So it was it was kind of funny that that then we're getting into Vietnam, which we did sort of as a, as a sort of throw out to the French and because there was a whole anti-communism McCarthyism thing there was the Korea and the loss of China and and there was this you know the, people forget I think sometimes that the domino theory dates all the way back I think that's a, from the Eisenhower administration so this idea that that if Vietnam went that was going to be it but the, the more interesting thing in a, in a way has been the sort of way that Vietnam has played itself out in American culture so if you watch TV American TV in the 1980s 
having been in Vietnam was a sort of character trope that was added on to add a little depth without doing any work. So Magnum yeah. PI, all the main characters were Vietnam veterans, except for the Higgins character, who was a veteran of British colonialism in a sort of nauseating way. Um, the, the detective show Riptide, those guys had all been in Vietnam, Simon and Simon, one of them had been in Vietnam. And then, you know, once again, we started trying to refight it. And then uh, in a way, we just decided to relive it. But this is the funny thing, too, about Afghanistan is that, that we sort of went in and then we just gave up, you know, at a certain point, once they had established, oh, Iraq, WMDs, like that's where the, you know, the, the real interest is. Yeah. Um, but the same dynamic happened in in Afghanistan as happened in Vietnam. Like it's it wasn't about conquering territory. You couldn't do that. So it became about killing the enemy, except killing the enemy becomes a sort of algorithmic generator for making more of the enemy. Yes. Uh, and then you just can't, you get in this, in this vicious circle, the most vicious of circles in a sense, uh, where everything you do causes you to have to do more of the things that were, you know, that were the problem in the first place. So, yeah. Um, I think the best way to think of the 2001 to present Afghan war is, or U S Afghan war rather is it was a revenge mission originally and then right. we just ended up stuck there <laughs> right um, right right and well, the, i mean the part you know it really was a bridge to iraq but the, the yes, funny thing now is well. that 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 biden is having to kind of explain it but not only was it a republican thing to start out with that is say george w bush got us in there but then you know it was unclear what i mean trump was like we're going out we're staying in we're going out we're staying in he just he hadn't i mean trump had no Trump's only policy idea was what the last person he talked to said to him. So it's not surprising that there was a certain inconsistency in, in what he was, what his policy was, but whatever you can say about Joe, but whatever else you can say about Joe Biden, this really needed to happen. Like people are beefing now about how the Chinese are going to come in and take over. I say they want to stick their finger in that pie, more power to them because it's Afghanistan has to work its own problems out. And history but, shows any foreign power meddling in that country is, <laughs> it's not yeah. going to end well. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So everybody's had a bad time. I mean, the Soviets had a horrific time there, thanks yeah. to us. And then it's, it's funny if you read, uh, if you read the Steve Call book, Shadow Wars, which I, or Ghost Wars, I, which I really recommend. It's a, it's a great book. But one of the things that happened was the CIA was just sort of like handing out Stinger missiles. And then when it sort of became clear that, that we were going to be the enemy, or just sort of in the interstitial period, the CIA was like, hmm, I wonder where all those stingers went. And then they tried this like buyback program. Of course, anybody who was holding a stinger missile at that point was like, mm, I, think, uh, I think a bird in the hand is worth a lot more than you're going to give me to turn it in. So, But speaking about working out unpleasant histories, Great Britain is being roiled at this point with uh, the Labour Party's, I don't know, self-immolation. There's a, there's a, a silent crisis. In the Labour Party, a kind of silent war going on. Um, I say silent because most people don't hear about it or see it. Certainly not in the news because most of the mainstream media is behind either behind Keir Starmer or criticising him for not being right-wing enough. Meanwhile, people are still being suspended. People are still facing expulsions over um, very minor things or in some cases just spurious things. Um 
Ken Loach, the socialist filmmaker, has been expelled recently. Young Labour is currently being targeted by the right-wing press and the leadership is is being uh, kind of, what would be the phrase, um, almost passively hostile towards them, um, just not engaging with them, um, trying to isolate them, trying to marginalise them on issues like Palestine. Um, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign won't be welcome at this year's Labour conference, um, despite the fact that it has been in the past and Keir Starmer spoke at past events of theirs. And there was even a controversy over whether or not uh, Jeremy Corbyn should be permitted access to the conference, whether he'll be allowed to even attend, never mind speak. Um, that's now being allowed because they don't want the fight over it. And Young Labour is, I think, taking legal advice on responding to some of the right-wing attacks. One of the most egregious attacks was from Oliver Cam, who's a kind of... Uh, uh, neoconservative journalist. He's a kind of a very poor, very poor man's Tom Friedman, you might say, something like that, who basically insinuated that young Labour is for quote unquote a second Holocaust on Twitter. Oh yeah, I saw that. And yeah, they're ta- I'm I'm happy they're taking legal advice on that because that's <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty scurrilous. It's pretty, pretty scurrilous accusation. Pretty extreme thing to say, um, and he's clearly said it because he thinks they won't sue him. Um, because you're talking about people who are, you know, uh, many of them are probably volunteers. Many of them who are paid probably paid very little, um, and the Labour leadership isn't likely to favour a big court case with the Times or a Times journalist. These kind of slanders against against the left are fair game because. You're talking about an abstract entity and who's going to respond. Meanwhile, the Starmer project or Starmer agenda, if you want to call it that, if there is such a thing, is is going ahead with its non-strategy, which is a kind of uh, attempt to be as inoffensive as possible uh, while gesturing gesturing in a, in a way on certain issues that no one would disagree, taking safe positions on things. Sorry, didn't Starmer say he wanted to be more about the flag or something like that? Yes, there's been a lot of uh, fixation on the Union flag. Something quite new to UK politics. We're not a very uh, flag-waggy nation in many ways. But since Brexit, there's been more and more flag-waving. You see the Union Jack, the Union flag rather, out and about. Certainly outside London, you see it a lot. And it used to be the preserve of uh, right-wingers, especially the England flag was associated with football and a certain kind of right-wing culture around football but we're now seeing Labour politicians very desperate to be photographed with a union flag in the background in their house um, or out in public even Trump's uh, campaign strategy in some case some cases the Hartlepool campaign uh, which Labour lost was an absolute disaster and we have it on on record that the Labour Party was obsessed with getting flags out during that campaign forgetting that they'd flown in this Blairite neoliberal centrist who was militantly pro-Remain and he's supposed to be campaigning in a in a constituency which is very very pro-Brexit yeah they just ignored what local people wanted and expected them to vote for them because they were waving a flag yeah I mean it seemed like the Labour Party number one couldn't get right about Brexit like they could never decide what they were for 
yes. uh, or which end they wanted to come out on. But then also there are these periodic spasms with the Labour Party. I remember living in the UK in the 1980s when uh, Neil Kinnock and his and his associates were were booting the militant tendency out of the Labour Party. But that seems a little different. I mean, this is really um, the Labour Party deciding that it wants to like occupy the political territory of the kind of left wing of the Tories, which is a strategy, which is, I mean, that's basically Blair, except that Blair in the beginning was somewhat likable, whereas anybody who says they like Keir Starmer, I'm pretty sure is lying. Um, but in any case, at this point, uh, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, he's, he's he's gone from neutral to to very unlikable, and and really, this is what Clinton did. This is why Clinton inspired Bill Clinton inspired such fanatical hatred from the American right because he essentially, you know, looked over the Republican platform, said, "This is mine now," and um, smiled a lot and did a lot of other stuff. But that was basically, you know, the Republicans were like, "Hey, wait, like this is this is what we've been." You know, and it, it really violated the logic of, of American politics in the sense that I think it was H.L. Mencken once said that given the choice between a fake Republican and a real one, Americans would pick the second one every time. And that's what's happening. Starmer, like it just seems like his plan is, well, we're just going to be we're going to take everything people like about the Tories and be that. Except that given the choice between a real Tory and a fake one, why not go for the real the real thing? Like, yeah, exactly. And the. The other challenge here is that the, the Conservative Party has changed dramatically in the last five years since Brexit. They've become an economic populist party. They've become very much a nationalist party. And they've been able to steal ideas from the Labour left and water them down and execute them. So the Tories are arguing, or have been recently, for raising corporation tax. They've been arguing for things like a capital gains increase they've introduced energy price caps they've they've nationalized things during this crisis these are things that the labor left has been calling for for many years and suddenly labor is nowhere on these issues you rewind just two years and these were our issues and suddenly labor has forfeited all of that ground and the tories are dominating on every front despite the fact that Boris isn't as popular as he once was. They'll, they'll probably win by default in 2024. Yeah. This is the problem, too, with, I mean, in a, in a, in a sense, just sort of like across the across the Atlantic world, if you want to use that term, the, the right has kind of shifted. In a way, it's become more agile, but in a way, it's become a kind of moving target. And it, it, it highlights the sense in which um, the politics of the right are not, I mean, there's a sort of postmodern dimension, if you want to call it, in the sense that there is no sort of like consistent narrative, or if there is, it's a kind of bi-level narrative where it's sort of like populism for the lower end of the income distribution, and then enrich yourself and devil take the hindmost at the, at the upper end. But this is the problem. I mean, this is the kind of interesting thing about this is why populism is, is an interesting topic, because you get populism as a sort of political force, and then it, it coughs up Donald Trump, who's like, of course, elite in a certain sense, except for his fact that he has no independent thoughts, as far as anyone can tell, except his own like overweening id. And then 
you know, likewise with Boris Johnson, what is Boris Johnson for or Jacob Rees-Mogg? Like what, what are these people for? I mean, they're for a sort of look, they're for a kind of like emotional appearance. They're not yeah. really for any consistent thing that you could then attack and say, like, as a policy matter or systematically there for that and we're for this, which is different. Okay. And the left has just not rocked this yet. A lot of the critics, especially of Trump, it was very clear early on, at least to me, that what they couldn't comprehend was that his his persona wasn't predicated on having credibility. You discredit someone who, from the starting point, has no credibility. Right. All of the flaws, all of the sleaze are up front, all of that. So you can't yeah. attack from that point of view. And again, I think many of his supporters, you know, don't care about policy detail and so you know the so-called facts. Thus fact-checking, all the stuff about post-truth narratives. It just didn't work. Calling right. him a liar didn't work. And there's a similar thing going on with Boris Johnson. Um, Boris Johnson is a perfect political chameleon. He he began as a kind of uh, libertarian Tory. He was a bit contrarian, a bit Eurosceptic. Then he reinvents himself to run for the London mayoral office. And he becomes a kind of liberal, multicultural Tory, and he was pretty centrist on many things, pretty socially liberal, um, talked up things like the housing crisis and so on, while at the same time uh, backing uh, financialization and all the rest. And then when Brexit comes along, of course, he famously wrote two articles sketching out opposing positions <laughs> and then decided which one to go for, letting the Tory leader... David Cameron know what he was going to do five minutes before he announced. And of course that was uh, inside the turn, inside the Tory machine. That was a turning point. The the truth is Boris Johnson doesn't give a shit about Brexit or many other things. Um, He's about his own self aggrandizement and you know, he he doesn't care about policy. I feel for his, his libertarian advisors who thought this was an opportunity to shrink the state and thought that he really believes in this stuff. Yeah, he's very much like Trump in that respect. He has no, yeah. Trump has no ideas. I mean, he really hardly has any consistent thoughts except relating to his libido, as far as anyone can tell. They're just tendencies, um, right? <laughs> right. And he's like, I mean, the thing about Trump, and this is, I think, a more pronounced thing in the United States than, although there's an element of it in the UK, that, that in the liberal media, like you kept getting this narrative, like, will this be the tipping point? You know, every new Trump outrage, will this be the tipping point? And, you know, after after a while, like they just it was it was so weird. They just refused to get the the idea. There is no tipping point. There's no point at which like moderate Republican whatever is going to abandon Trump because there's no there's no like money in it. Like there's no there's no positive. There's no upside. Like so you see these Republicans who who the never Trump Republicans. And they've just been absolutely butchered by the, I mean, they're, you know, they all get primaried or they lose support from the RNC, like Mitt Romney, who essentially has a kind of safe seat. So he can say whatever he wants. Nobody really cares. But it seemed like there was an element of this too in the, in, in the UK about when are people going to sort of realize what would be the tipping point when they realize that, that Boris is the sort of poster child for failing upward. And um, yeah. And it just never happened. Yeah. The thing that hurt Boris the most amongst his supporters, as far as I can tell, is the scandal over his wallpaper. That's about it. Um, yeah. 
you know, everything else, it's like it's like he's Teflon. And it is because his his act is that he has no credibility. Um, he, he's a mess, he's disorganized, and it's not just an act. I've said it in interviews that if you if you don't hide the fact that you are a mess, some people will assume that you're actually a genius pretending <laughs> you're a right. mess. Um, right. And that's definitely the case with a lot of the media uh, right. over here. I mean, a lot of, with Donald Trump, like when the whole, like, oh, he paid a prostitute hush money. Yeah. Like, there's a certain proportion of Americans who was like, I wish I could do that. Like, you know, A, I wish, you know, some porn star wanted to sleep with me or would be willing to, and B, that I had the money to actually pay anybody hush money about anything or a reason to. And, yeah. you know, people, people see, you know, although Trump has a lot of money, people see him about 20% of the white male population of the country, or maybe a bit more, sees them as, as fundamentally like them in some, in some regard, which is, which, you know, means that they will keep voting for him. And, and they also tend to be the primary voters. So you can, in a Republican primary, especially, there's no idea that you can put out there now. I mean, Texas, once again, I mean, periodically they talk about seceding. I mean, you hear that you haven't heard that like quite so recently, but in the last few years, you've heard or, like parts of Colorado wants to form its own state, excluding like the liberals or whatever. Texas, if they wanted to secede, I'm okay with that. If they wanted to take <laughs> Louisiana and Mississippi with them, maybe Alabama, I'm, I'm not totally down on that idea. I mean, for serious, I think it's a terrible idea, but yeah, but the um, but it's just part of this kind of rhetoric of somewhat nonsensical politics. And the problem is really, and this, this would be a clown show except for the fact, well, I mean, it is a clown show too, but, but the problem is that the social democratic left has, has lost its credibility because it imbibed so much of the kind of neoliberal doctrines in the eighties, nineties, oddies. And they, you know, they lost credibility with a lot of their core constituents. And now they have no idea, like it could have been, if you're if you're talking about a sort of like well formed social democratic left that, that the kind that existed in the in the middle of the 20th century, you, you can laugh off people like Trump, but you can't anymore. A lot of people who might be sort of down the lower end of the of the income distribution think, well, Trump is, you know, Trump is what I want to be, and the, the the problem for the left is they keep they have no sort of they don't know how to fight that, and they keep proposing sort of utopias that nobody wants so the, the key i think for the left is to try and find like a utopia that people actually want and that's consistent with with leftist principles and offer that but of course if i knew the answer to that right this minute i would not be talking to you i'd be out on the lecture circuit of course uh, being paid 150 dollars a night or whatever <laughs> the dynamic over here is is slightly different i mean going back to trump's persona i think that was unique about trump um, I don't think Boris Johnson is quite the same fantasy figure for a lot of people. Um, he doesn't quite kind of appeal to a collective fantasy among angry white men. Although he has he has his cheerleaders, but many of the people who support him genuinely believe he believes this stuff. And some of them have been very disillusioned. I'm sure many of them are, are in for more shocks to come. And then on the British left, we came very close to a major breakthrough over here for some kind of like radical social democratic politics and trying to rebuild 
not just rebuild, completely transform the Labour Party. But unfortunately, we've been pushed back on that front and we're now, it feels like we're in a box, frankly. I'm not sure where we're going to go from here. We need some kind of uh, extra parliamentary movement that will defend migrants' rights, defend uh, civil liberties, defend workers. That's really where we are now. Yeah, we're, I mean, the, the there's never been, or the, the left has always been kind of muted in the United States. And there's mm. a lot of discussion about why. But now we're in this situation where the, the sort of uh, the right-wing strategy of getting control of state institutions is really bearing fruit in the sense that Supreme Court decided not to rule on the really horrific abortion law that Texas, that Texas passed such that not only can you not get an abortion later than six weeks after conception, by which time a lot of people don't still are unaware that they're pregnant, but also that you can, not the mother herself, but anybody who assists her can be dimed out and, and face legal penalties. And that's the, the fact that the Supreme Court just wouldn't touch it. Uh, and the fact that the Supreme Court is now packed with people like Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Kavanaugh and what have you is a, is a bad sign for American democracy going forward. That having been said, I think that's about all the time we have for this round. Hopefully we'll be back next week with more chat about the news and hopefully we can get some other content going so that it's not just the two of us batting things about, but that's all right too. Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast wing, podcast arm, if you will, of www.thebattleground.eu. I'm the, they, Joel keeps sort of saying like, well, come up with a, come up with a title for you. And he never quite does. He, books editor is the best thing that they came up with for me. Um, and I think it's just because I read a lot of books and I'm so unimaginative. I call myself the London correspondent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sort of like on the streets, seeing what's happening. Unofficially. This is mostly just going to be for the time being. We have some interview stuff set up. I did an interview with Peter Salmon a few months ago. I have an interview coming up with Quinn Slobodian, hopefully that will get posted soon about neoliberalism and about his book, Globalist, which uh, I commend to you all. But mostly what we want to do is just sort of talk about what's going on and see if we can try and get some purchase on it. And I think that the number one thing in the news in North America right now, besides the, the rapidly dwindling supply of ivermectin, the anti-worming, stuff that the right-wingers have decided is the cure for COVID. I mean, my God, I won't take the COVID vaccine, but I will take a horse dewormer, which I suppose is better than like washing your innards out with bleach or whatever <laughs> Donald Trump at one time suggested. was The, the Joe Rogan uh, approach over the Donald Trump approach. Yeah. I mean, when, when Joe Rogan is the sort of like model for behavior in North America, like you really hit a pretty low point, but anybody watching this probably already knew that. So, ironically, because Afghanistan was, I thought, a lost cause on day one. I mean, I really, the whole sort of rhetoric of we're going to go in there and nation build or whatever was, you know, I thought it was a pipe dream. And a lot of people did. I mean, it wasn't, there was this sort of moment, kind of post 9-11 moment where everyone was like, well, oh, something's got to be done. Let's start bombing some people. And then you could kind of see that the sort of creep, even before there were any boots on the ground in Afghanistan, that it was going to be about Iraq. I mean, it was, it was it was pretty much open secret that that was what they were looking to do. So the whole mission in Afghanistan 
I mean, it was funny going forward that they tried to sort of make it into, they tried to sort of sell it in this, in this way, like, oh, we're bringing freedom to the benighted Afghanis, like uh, Laura Bush, who basically didn't do very much else in public during her husband's presidency, yeah. got out as the sort of avatar of uh, benighted Afghani womanhood. She did that for about 10 minutes in public and then, you know, disappeared again to no one's, to no one's surprise. But it's, it's, it's really one of those situations where not only was it a loser going in, I mean, really the, the idea that we were going to go in there, that they were just waiting to, to be like Warden June Cleaver and just turn into us was obviously a fantasy. But the worst part in a, in, a, in a certain sense was that, I mean, over and above the horrific destruction, loss of life, etc., was that in a weird way, it was a kind of rejigging of the whole Vietnam complex, which has been the definitive experience of American life ever since, you know, I was born in 68, the year of the Tet Offensive. Uh, in the 70s, I remember you know, Vietnam was omnipresent in American culture. In the 80s, we started trying to refight it um, and win this time. And every... The Rambo. Uh, right, yeah, Rambo. After the first one, the first one was about Vietnam veterans are messed up and why don't we take better care of them? But then the second one, he moves off into trying to rewin the war. And he's not alone. There's, the, there's this persistent fiction that there were like these prison camps where the, the, the Vietnamese were holding... American soldiers for years and decades after the war. And it was it was sort of a myth created by the US government because they were trying to downplay the actual casualty statistics, I think is, is the explanation. But but they allowed this myth to be created that the you know the Vietnamese were holding all these poor, you know, horribly mistreated soldiers. Uh, and not to say that the the the, the leadership of North Vietnam was was very nice. They certainly were not, but it was clearly one of those kind of like, you know, we lost it, we need to rewin it. But the, the mistake that they made in Vietnam was very much the same mistake they made in Afghanistan. They just made it for a lot longer. Uh, I'm curious, how does it look from uh, from outside the bounds of the United States? Well, the UK has its own special kind of history with Afghanistan that isn't acknowledged. Certainly not in, in public discourse, certainly not in the media. Every so often you hear references to the Anglo-Afghan wars, but it's not really discussed in depth what happened. And Afghanistan is basically the only uh, colonised country in the 19th century to resist and successfully resist British colonial uh, expeditions. They basically chased the British army out in 1842, um, which we've completely erased from our our collective memory and our pop culture. It's it's not something you learn about in schools, but it's a huge, it was a huge moment for the Afghans. It's, it's quote, I think one historian put it, it's, it's like for the British, we have the battle of Britain, Waterloo, Trafalgar, the Afghans had all three in one, <laughs> right? And that was right. kicking the British out. But we kept coming back. We came back in the eighteen seventies, and reinvaded and fought another war. I think we were back just after the uh, Indian Rebellion, so-called Indian Mutiny, and then we came back again in the eighteen nineties. Winston Churchill was there, and then again in nineteen nineteen. Then you skip forward several decades and we follow the Americans in. There's a sort of interesting element here in the respect that there's a kind of anti-colonialist element to American thought, like especially less less now, but in the mid-20th century, there was this sort of, I mean, one of the sort of beefs that, that Winston Churchill had with 
with Roosevelt was that Roosevelt was, I mean, not only did Roosevelt sort of leverage a lot of British possessions and money yeah. because the British were being attacked by Nazi Germany, but Roosevelt was always kind of chiding Churchill about, about British colonialism, very ironically, because America, it's not like the United States is, doesn't have a colonial past. We just have done it slightly differently. I mean, by and large, we don't do settler colonies. We just do like the Philippines, sort of brutal colonial systems run by us at the top and the, the locals on the ground. But um, although you are a settler colon- colonial system originally, right? Well, that's so. that's yes. North America was the sort of exception, but that that I blame on you. Yeah, fair um, enough. But that's the thing about being a settler colony. You really like the logic of it is you have to sort of get rid of the the people who are there, which which we did. I mean, the like the, the whole United States is based on on slavery and the genocide of the native people. So, but but by and large, in the in the nineteenth and twentieth century, we were more about sort of setting up client systems as opposed to as opposed to large scale settler colonialism. So it was it was kind of funny that that then we're getting into Vietnam, which we did sort of as a, as a sort of throw out to the French. And because we, there was a whole anti-communism, McCarthyism thing, there was the Korea and the loss of China. And, and there was this, you know, the, people forget, I think sometimes that the domino theory dates all the way back. I think that's a, from the Eisenhower administration. So this idea that, that if Vietnam went, that was going to be it. But the, the more interesting thing in a, in a way has been the sort of way that Vietnam has played itself out in American culture. So if you watch TV, American TV in the 1980s, having been in Vietnam was a sort of character trope that was added on to add a little depth without doing any work. So Magnum yeah. PI, all the main characters were Vietnam veterans, except for the Higgins character, who was a veteran of British colonialism in a sort of nauseating way. Um, the, the detective show Riptide, those guys had all been in Vietnam, Simon and Simon, one of them had been in Vietnam. And then, you know, once again, we started trying to refight it. And then, uh, in a way, we just decided to relive it. But this is the funny thing, too, about Afghanistan, is that, that we sort of went in and then we just gave up. You know, at a certain point, once they had established, oh, Iraq, WMDs, like that's where the, you know, the, the real interest is. Yeah. Um, but the same dynamic happened in in Afghanistan has happened in Vietnam. Like it's, it wasn't about conquering territory. You couldn't do that. So it became about killing the enemy, except killing the enemy becomes a sort of algorithmic generator for making more of the enemy. Yes. Uh, And then you just can't, you get in this, in this vicious circle, the most vicious of circles in a sense uh, where everything you do causes you to have to do more of the things that were, you know, that were the problem in the first place. So, yeah, um, I think the best way to think of the 2001 to present Afghan war is, or US Afghan war rather, is it was a revenge mission originally, and then right. we just ended up stuck there. <laughs> right, um, right, right. And well, the, I mean, the part you know, it really was a bridge to Iraq. But the, the yes, funny thing now is well. that 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 Biden is having to kind of explain it. But not only was it a Republican thing to start out with, that is, say George W. Bush got us in there but then you know it was unclear what i mean trump was like we're going out we're staying in we're going out we're staying in he just he hadn't i mean trump had no trump's only policy idea was what the last person he talked to said to him so it's it's not surprising that there was a certain inconsistency in in what he was what his policy was but whatever you can say about joe but whatever else you can say about joe biden this really needed to happen like people are 
beefing now about how the Chinese are going to come in and take over. I say, if they want to stick their finger in that pie, more power to them because it's Afghanistan has to work its own problems out. And history but, shows any foreign power meddling in that country is <laughs> it's not yeah. going to end well. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So everybody's had a bad time. I mean, the Soviets had a horrific time there. Thanks yeah. to us. And then it's, it's funny if you read uh, if you read the Steve Call book, Shadow Wars, which I or Ghost Wars, I, which I really recommend. It's a, it's a great book. But one of the things that happened was the CIA was just sort of like handing out stinger missiles. And then when it sort of became clear that that we were going to be the enemy or just sort of in the interstitial period, the CIA was like, hmm, I wonder where all those stingers went. And then they tried this like buyback program. But of course, anybody who was holding a Stinger missile at that point was like, mm, I, think, uh, I think a bird in the hand is worth a lot more than you're going to give me to turn it in. So, But speaking about working out unpleasant histories, Great Britain is being roiled at this point with uh, the Labour Party's, I don't know, self-immolation. There's a, there's a, a silent crisis. In the Labour Party, a kind of silent war going on. Um, I say silent because most people don't hear about it or see it. Certainly not in the news because most of the mainstream media is behind either behind Keir Starmer or criticising him for not being right-wing enough. Meanwhile, people are still being suspended. People are still facing expulsions over um, very minor things or in some cases just spurious things. Um... Ken Loach, the socialist filmmaker, has been expelled recently. Young Labour is currently being targeted by the right-wing press and the leadership is is being uh, kind of, what would be the phrase, um, almost passively hostile towards them, um, just not engaging with them, um, trying to isolate them, trying to marginalise them on issues like Palestine. Um, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign won't be welcome at this year's Labour conference, um, despite the fact that it has been in the past and Keir Starmer spoke at past events of theirs. And there was even a controversy over whether or not uh, Jeremy Corbyn should be permitted access to the conference, whether he'll be allowed to even attend, never mind speak. Um, that's now being allowed because they don't want the fight over it. And Young Labour is... I think taking legal advice on responding to some of the right-wing attacks. One of the most egregious attacks was from Oliver Cam, who's a kind of a, a neoconservative journalist. He's a kind of a very poor, very poor man's Tom Friedman, you might say, something like that, who basically insinuated that Young Labour is for quote unquote a second Holocaust on Twitter. Oh yeah, I saw that. And. Yeah, they're ta- I'm I'm happy they're taking legal advice on that because that's <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty scurrilous, it's pretty, pretty scurrilous accusation, a pretty extreme thing to say. Um, and he's clearly said it because he thinks they won't sue him. Um, because you're talking about people who are, you know, uh, many of them are probably volunteers, many of them who are paid probably paid very little. Um, and the labor leadership isn't likely to favor a big court case with. The Times or a Times journalist. These kind of slanders against against the left are fair game because you're talking about an abstract entity and who's going to respond. Meanwhile, the Starmer project or Starmer agenda, if you want to call it that, if there is such a thing, is is going ahead with its non-strategy, which is a kind of uh, attempt to be as inoffensive as possible 
uh, while gesturing, gesturing in a, in a way on certain issues that no one would disagree, taking safe positions on things. Sorry, didn't Starmer say he wanted to be more about the flag or something like that? I mean, yes, there's been a lot of uh, fixation on the Union flag. Something quite new to UK politics. We're not a very uh, flag-waggy nation in many ways. But since Brexit, there's been more and more flag-waving. Uh, you see the Union Jack, the Union flag rather, out and about. Certainly outside London you see it a lot. And it used to be the preserve of uh, right-wingers, and especially the England flag was associated with football and a certain kind of right-wing culture around football but we're now seeing Labour politicians very desperate to be photographed with a union flag in the background in their house um, or out in public it even trumps a uh, campaign strategy in some case some cases the Hartlepool campaign uh, which Labour lost was an absolute disaster and we have it on on record that the Labour Party was obsessed with getting flags out during that campaign, forgetting that they'd flown in this Blairite neoliberal centrist who is militantly pro-Remain and he's supposed to be campaigning in a in a constituency which is very, very pro-Brexit. Yeah, they just ignored what local people wanted and expected them to vote for them because they were waving a flag. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like the Labour Party, number one, couldn't get right about Brexit. Like, they could never yes. decide what they were for. Yes. Uh, or which end they wanted to come out on. But then also there are these periodic spasms with the Labour Party. I remember living in the UK in the 1980s when uh, Neil Kinnock and his and his associates were, were booting the militant tendency out of the Labour Party. But that seems a little different. I mean, this is really um, the Labour Party deciding that it wants to, like, occupy the political territory of the kind of left wing of the Tories, which is a strategy which is, I mean, that's basically Blair, except that Blair in the beginning was somewhat likable, whereas anybody who says they like Keir Starmer, I'm pretty sure is lying. Um, but in any case... At this point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. He's, he's, he's gone from neutral to, to very unlikable. And, and really, this is what Clinton did. This is why Clinton inspired, Bill Clinton inspired such fanatical hatred from the American right, because he essentially, you know, looked over the Republican platform, said, this is mine now, and um, smiled a lot and did a lot of other stuff. But that was basically, you know, the Republicans were like, hey, wait, like, this is this is what we've been, you know, and it, it really violated the logic of, of American politics in the sense that I think it was H.L. Mencken once said that given the choice between a fake Republican and a real one, Americans will pick the second one every time. And that's what's happening, Starmer. Like, it just seems like his plan is, well, we're just going to be, we're going to take everything people like about the Tories and be that. Except that given the choice between a real Tory and a fake one, why not go for the real, the real thing? Like, Yeah, exactly. And the, the other challenge here is that the, the Conservative Party has changed dramatically in the last five years since Brexit. They've become an economic populist party. They've become very much a nationalist party. And they've been able to steal ideas from the Labour left and water them down and execute them. So the Tories are arguing, or have been recently, for raising corporation tax. They've been arguing for things like a capital gains increase. They've introduced energy price caps. They've, they've nationalised things. 
during this crisis. These are things that the Labour left has been calling for for many years. And suddenly Labour is nowhere on these issues. You rewind just two years and these were our issues. And suddenly Labour has forfeited all of that ground and the Tories are dominating on every front, despite the fact that Boris isn't as popular as he once was. They'll probably win by default in 2024. Yeah. This is the problem, too, with, I mean, in a, in a, in a sense, just sort of like across the, across the Atlantic world, if you want to use that term, the, the right has kind of shifted. In a way, it's become more agile, but in a way, it's become a kind of moving target. And it, it, it highlights the sense in which um, the politics of the right are not, I mean, there's a sort of postmodern dimension, if you want to call it, in the sense that there is no sort of like consistent narrative, or if there is... It's a kind of bi-level narrative where it's sort of like populism for the lower end of the income distribution and then enrich yourself and devil take the hindmost at the, at the upper end. But this is the problem. I mean, this is the kind of interesting thing about this is why populism is, is an interesting topic, because you get populism as a sort of political force and then it, it coughs up Donald Trump, who's like, of course elite in a certain sense, except for his fact that he's has no independent thoughts, as far as anyone can tell, except his own like overweening id. And then, you know, likewise with Boris Johnson, what is Boris Johnson for? Or Jacob Rees-Mogg? Like what, what are these people for? I mean, they're for a sort of look, they're for a kind of like emotional appearance. They're not yeah. really for any consistent thing that you could then attack and say, like, as a policy matter, or systematically there for that, and we're for this, which is different. Indeed. And the left has just not rocked this yet. A lot of the critics, especially of Trump, it was very clear early on, at least to me, that what they couldn't comprehend was that his his persona wasn't predicated on hard head right. ability. You discredit someone who, from the starting point, has no credibility. Right. All of the flaws, all of the sleaze are up front, all of that. So you can't yeah. attack from that point of view. And again, I think many of his supporters, you know, don't care about policy detail and so you know the so-called facts. Thus, fact-checking, all the stuff about post-truth narratives, it just didn't work. Calling right. him a liar didn't work. And there's a similar thing going on with Boris Johnson. Um, Boris Johnson is a perfect political chameleon. He, he began as a kind of uh, libertarian... Tory, he was a bit contrarian, a bit Eurosceptic. Then he reinvents himself to run for the London mayoral office, and he becomes a kind of liberal, multicultural Tory, and he was pretty centrist on many things, pretty socially liberal, um, talked up things like the housing crisis and so on, while at the same time uh, backing uh, financialization and all the rest. And then when Brexit comes along, of course, he famously wrote two articles sketching out opposing positions <laughs> and then decided which one to go for, letting the Tory leader, David Cameron, know what he was going to do five minutes before he announced. And, of course, that was... Uh, in, inside, the tur- inside the Tory machine, that was a turning point. The, the truth is Boris Johnson doesn't give a shit about Brexit or many other things. Um, right. He's about his own self-aggrandizement and, you know, he, d- he doesn't care about policy. 
I feel for right. his his libertarian advisors who thought this was an opportunity to shrink the state and thought that he right. really believes in this stuff. Yeah, he's very much like Trump in that respect. He has no yeah. Trump has no ideas. I mean, he really hardly has any consistent thoughts except relating to his libido, as far as anyone can tell. They were just tendencies, um, right? <laughs> and he's like, I mean, the thing about Trump, and this is, I think, a more pronounced thing in the United States than, although there's an element of it in the UK, that that in the liberal media, like, you kept getting this narrative, like, will this be the tipping point? You know, every new Trump outrage, will this be the tipping point? And, you know, after after a while, like, they just... It was, it was so weird. They just refused to get the, the idea. There is no tipping point. There's no point at which like moderate Republican, whatever is going to abandon Trump because there's no, there's no like money in it. Like there's no, there's no positive, there's no upside. Like, so you see these Republicans who've, who've, who've the never Trump Republicans and they've just been absolutely butchered by the, I mean, they're, you know, they all get primaried or they lose support from the RNC Mitt Romney, who essentially has a kind of safe seat, so he can say whatever he wants, nobody really cares. But it seemed like there was an element of this too in the in in the UK about when are people going to sort of realize what would be the tipping point when they realize that that Boris is the sort of poster child for failing upward, and um, yeah, and it just never happened. Yeah, the thing that hurt Boris the most amongst his supporters, as far as I can tell, is the scandal over his wallpaper. That's about it. Um, yeah, you know everything else. It's like it's like he's Teflon, and it is because his his act is that he has no credibility. Um, he he's a mess. He's disorganized, and it's not just an act. Said it in interviews that if you if you don't hide the fact that you are a mess, some people will assume that you're actually a genius pretending <laughs> you're a right. mess, um, right. and that's definitely the case with a lot of the media. Uh, right over here. I mean, a lot of with Donald Trump, like when the whole, like, oh, he paid a prostitute hush money. Yeah. Like, it's, there's a certain proportion of Americans who was like, I wish I could do that. Like, you know, a, I wish you know some porn star wanted to sleep with me or would be willing to, and b, that I had the money to actually pay anybody hush money about anything or a reason to. And mm. you know, people people see you know, although Trump has a lot of money, people see him about 20% of the white male population of the country, or maybe a bit more, sees them as, as fundamentally like them in some, in some regard, which is, which, you know, means that they will keep voting for him. And, and they also tend to be the primary voters. So you can, in a Republican primary, especially, there's no idea that you can put out there now. I mean, Texas, once again, I mean, periodically they talk about seceding. I mean, you hear you haven't heard that like quite so recently, but in the last few years, you've heard or, like parts of Colorado wants to form its own state, excluding like the liberals or whatever. Texas, if they wanted to secede, I'm okay with that. If they wanted to take <laughs> Louisiana and Mississippi with them, maybe Alabama, I'm I'm not totally down on that idea. I mean, for serious, I think it's a terrible idea, but yeah, but the um, but it's just part of this kind of rhetoric of somewhat nonsensical politics. And the problem is really, and this, this would be a clown show except for the fact, well, I mean, it is a clown show too, but, but the problem is that the social democratic left has, has lost its credibility because it imbibed so much of the kind of neoliberal doctrines in the eighties, nineties, oddies. And they, you know, they lost credibility with a lot of their core constituents 
And now they have no idea. Like it could have been, if you're, if you're talking about a sort of like well-formed social democratic left that, that the kind that existed in the, in the middle of the 20th century, you, know, you can laugh off people like Trump, but you can't anymore. A lot of people who might be sort of down the lower end of the, of the income distribution think, well, Trump is, you know, Trump is what I want to be. And the, the, the problem for the left is they keep, they have no sort of, they don't know how to fight that. And they keep proposing sort of utopias that nobody wants. So the, the key, I think, for the left is to try and find like a utopia that people actually want and that's consistent with, with leftist principles and offer that. But of course, if I knew the answer to that right this minute, I would not be talking to you. I'd be out on the lecture circuit. Of course. Uh, being paid $150 a night or whatever. <laughs> the dynamic over here is, is slightly different. I mean, going back to Trump's persona, I think that was unique about Trump. Um, I don't think Boris Johnson is quite the same fantasy figure for a lot of people. Um, he doesn't quite kind of appeal to a collective fantasy among angry white men. Although he has he has his cheerleaders, but many of the people who support him genuinely believe he believes this stuff. And some of them have been very disillusioned. I'm sure many of them are, are in for more shocks to come. And then on the British left, we came very close to a major breakthrough over here for some kind of like radical social democratic politics and trying to rebuild not just rebuild, completely transform the Labour Party. But unfortunately, we've been pushed back on that front. And we're now, it feels like we're in a box, frankly. I'm not sure where we're going to go from here. We need some kind of uh, extra parliamentary movement that will defend migrants' rights, defend uh, civil liberties, defend workers. And that's really where we are now. We are now. Yeah, we're, I mean, the there's never been, or the, the left has always been kind of muted in the United States. And there's mm. a lot of discussion about why. But now we're in this situation where the, the sort of uh, the right wing strategy of getting control of state institutions is really bearing fruit in the sense that Supreme Court decided not to rule on the really horrific abortion law that Texas, that Texas passed such that not only can you not get an abortion later than six weeks after conception, by which time a lot of people don't still are unaware that they're pregnant, but also that you can, not the mother herself, but anybody who assists her can be dimed out and, and face legal penalties. And that's the, the fact that the Supreme Court just wouldn't touch it. Uh, and the fact that the Supreme Court is now packed with people like Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Kavanaugh and what have you is a, is a bad sign for American democracy going forward. That having been said, I think that's about all the time we have for this round. Hopefully we'll be back next week with more chat about the news and hopefully we can get some other content going so that it's not just the two of us batting things about, but that's all right too.